Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. My title for today Uh, The message is gathering around the gospel as we continue our series, Gospel-Centered Church. I'm going to be in Romans 14 today, and I'll I'll draw your attention there in just a moment. Let me start by sharing a quote with you from C.J. Mahaney uh, in his his book, The Cross-Centered Life, Keeping the Gospel the Main Thing. Listen to what he said, really important. Very small errors in understanding the gospel early on can result in very big problems later on. And it's true. And I think an illustration we could use is as we look at the aftermath and the investigation of like major structures that have collapsed or fallen where there's been a disaster and people have lost their lives. For example, in Seoul, Korea on June 29th, 1995, a famous uh, department store collapse of the Sam Poong department store. 500 people lost their lives that day. Tragic, awful, terrible. But you can trace the collapse of the building to decisions that were made to cut corners and not use good materials way back early on in the construction of the department store. In 1981 in Kansas City, Missouri, famous disaster of the Hyatt Regency Hotel Skywalk collapsed killing 114 people, 114 people, injuring 216 others. Again, investigators went in to trace, why did this happen? What what went wrong? And as they investigated that, they realized there was some fundamental flaws in the way it was constructed. In both of these tragedies, there was fundamental flaws in the construction that led to a catastrophe later on. And I've known families like this. I've known Marriages like this. I've known churches like this. So there's two parts of our gospel experience, our belief and our practice. And we've talked about belief the last few weeks, Jesus plus nothing, the fulfilled law of love that Josh shared last week. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about our practice while we keep the gospel in view. We're going to talk about how gospel belief creates gospel culture. In Galatians chapter 2, when Peter was withdrawing from the Gentile non-Jewish believers to eat with the Jews uh, because he had been deceived, apparently, by, uh, or pressured at least, by, by the false gospel that they were teaching that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so P- Peter began to withdraw because he was Jewish. He began to withdraw and only eat with the Jews. And here's what Paul said when Paul confronted him. Really amazing passage of scripture in Galatians 2. It's like battle of the titans. I mean, you see one apostle confronting publicly another apostle about behavior that he felt like was inconsistent with uh, the gospel of grace. Uh, and it's amazing. You look at Peter's life. I mean, God was, had done so much in his life, but still Peter was sort of a bungler and clumsy at times. And here we find him Clumsy again with the gospel. The gospel is slippery, right? We talked about that in the first week of the series. The gospel is slippery. We drift, we leak, and we, we lose our confidence. We lose our assurance. We lose sight of the cause and the effect of the gospel. Well, here's Peter. He withdraws. 
to eat with the Jews. And Paul said this, when I saw that what he was doing was not in line with the gospel. What is he, what is he doing there? What is Paul doing? He's saying we need to draw lines in our church culture, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we interact. We need to draw lines to the gospel to figure out whether or not we have gospel culture. So we draw lines from our belief to our practice and from our practice to our beliefs, back and forth. Does my behavior make sense in light of the gospel of grace? For example, if I don't forgive someone, when I try to draw a line back to the gospel, it doesn't work, it doesn't make sense. Unforgiveness, hatred, bitterness, racism, don't make sense in light of the gospel. When we see a God who loved us and gave himself for us when we were undeserving, or not based on our externals or our performance, we should love others not based on externals or performance. You know, whether or not they, they are a good person in our eyes or by our standards, what color of skin they had, what, what ethnicity they, they are. None of those things should matter um, because of the gospel, because of grace. So I draw a line back to the gospel and it can help me understand whether or not my behavior and the way I'm interacting with other people is gospel-centered. I'm going to share two of my favorite words with you, and I won't belabor uh, time in you know, explaining these deeply because they're actually pretty simple. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, you've, you've heard the term orthodox, right? In, in, in theology, that's, that's a really important thing to understand. Well, what, is, what are the core beliefs of Christianity that have been taught you know, since the apostles, that's, that's orthodox Christianity. Uh, so orthodoxy is gospel in belief or correct belief. Orthopraxy is gospel in practice or correct gospel behavior. Here's what Ray Ortland, author of the book, The Gospel, actually a pastor right out here, one of the pastors at Emmanuel uh, Nashville, a church we're connected to through Acts 29. He wrote a great little book, on the gospel, and listen to what he said. He kind of gave some, uh, I'll call it gospel math. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. Gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. But gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals power. What is he saying? If we have the right beliefs, if we have the right you know, theology, but we don't have the right practice. We don't treat one another. We don't love people. We don't serve one another or serve our community or bear one another's burdens. Then we're actually still heretical. We're still, in our practice, we're not affirming the gospel that we believe, the gospel of grace that we believe. But if you just have gospel culture, everybody loves one another, but don't have gospel doctrine, that backbone, that that helps us identify who true believers are. I mean, believers believe stuff, right? So if we don't have gospel doctrine, then we have a fragile culture that might not even be Christian if, we don't, if we're not following the real Jesus. But gospel doctrine, solid. Gospel culture, solid, equals power. Orthodoxy plus orthopraxy equals power. Here's what Ray Ortland wrote about that. So the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper, plus its culture in practice. A demonstration in the life that this correct and vital scriptural emphasis meets the genuine needs and aspirations of men. 
If a church's gospel culture has been lost or was never built, the only remedy is found at the feet of Jesus. That church needs a fresh rediscovery of the gospel in all its beauty. It needs to prayerfully reconsider everything it believes and practices. Nothing is gained by merely repackaging the church in forms more attractive to outsiders. The need of our times is nothing less than the re-Christianization of our churches according to the gospel alone in both doctrine and culture by Christ himself. Love it. We need both. We need gospel doctrine and gospel culture, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So today we're going to look at a passage in Romans that's huge in light of being a gospel-centered church. First, let's just talk about Romans. Kind of a big, quick overview of Romans. Romans 1 through 3 basically teaches, we stink. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that sets up the answer, which is Romans 4 and 5, justification by faith. That because we're sinful, because we're fallen, the only hope of our salvation is being justified not by our works, but being justified by faith in Jesus and his finished work at the cross. Romans 6 through 8 transitions from our justification to our sanctification, but it basically says the same thing. You're sanctified the same way as you're saved in the beginning. You continue the journey the same way by grace. Romans 9 through 12 gets into election and the plan of salvation, Israel. Then Romans 12 through 16, the whole book transitions from doctrine to practice, but there. There's this transitional couple of verses where you can see the moment Paul transitions from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, where he transitions from gospel doctrine to gospel culture. And here's what he says. This is the NIV, actually, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's Paul doing? Paul's saying, I'm about to give you some instructions, but let's draw a line to the gospel first. In view of God's mercy, here's the practice. Here's the practical, here's practical Christianity. And the text that I'm going to read today and teach out of the rest of the time is right in the middle of that part of Romans where he's talking about practical Christianity, but he's drawing a line to the gospel. He's he's sharing these things in view of God's mercy. So pick up Romans 14, verse 1, and Paul's giving some instructions for just how to get along while we hold our preferences and convictions near and dear to our hearts with our own faith. So here's the text. I'm going to read a good chunk of scripture, but it's good. We need to hear what he has to say. As for the one whose faith is weak, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. If one believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and of drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So that is so clear, I could probably stop right there and make what Paul just wrote the message, but, but I want to share some thoughts today. Um, let's talk about what was happening here. What was happening in the early church in, in, in Rome was some people in, in Rome were, they would sacrifice food, uh, sacrifice animals to false gods, to idols. And they would take that food and they'd sell it in the marketplaces or people would offer it in their homes. And believers were interacting with these people and, uh, and they were being offered to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. And some believers said, I can't do that. Uh, I, this was sacrificed to a demon God. I can't participate in that worship. Other Christians said, God made the animal. Through prayer, I can sanctify this and I can eat this unto the Lord regardless of whether or not it was used for an evil, evil purpose. God provided the food and I can partake of it. And so you had this argument between Christians in the church in Rome where some were saying, I, I abstain from doing that, therefore I am right and holy. And you had other people who said, uh, I don't abstain, therefore I really get grace and you don't. And so you had this, you had a, you had this, uh, this tension and this, this fraction, fracture in the church. Well, you might break this whole passage into two conversations. Number one, watch your heart when you interact with someone in Christ who uses their liberty differently than you do. And number two, watch your actions when you interact with someone in Christ who uses their liberty differently than you do. Now, ultimately, the conflict and the remedy are the same for both conversations. So let's look at these two things, the conflict and the remedy. What's the conflict? Where does it come from? And what's the remedy? How do we overcome and preserve the unity of God's people and preserve love while we might have a different opinion about different things? Uh, today, it's not food sacrifice to idols. In a minute, I'll talk about maybe what, a, what some of our tensions and debates are today in the modern Western church. Let's talk about the conflict first. What was the conflict? 
I'm going to call the conflict extra-biblical excess. What do I mean by this? I mean that there are things that people bring into the center of the gospel that the gospel doesn't bring into the center of the gospel, that the apostles never brought into the center of the gospel. What is the center of the gospel? We talked about this two weeks ago. The center of the gospel is faith in Christ. Paul's gospel was that you're acceptable to God based on faith in Jesus plus nothing. And that that is the foundation on which our hearts are transformed into doing good works. So the cause uh, is our salvation and the effect is good works. And so the cause, the cause is justification. The effect is sanctification. And so we get that from passages like Romans 5.1, which says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the effect of that is I no longer try to do good works out of pride or fear or religious obligation or trying to, you know, outdo somebody else with some, you know, weird sense of religious superiority. I do good works because I'm saved by grace out of gratitude and love and worship alone. How could I be fearful when Jesus said it is finished? How could I be prideful when I apparently was so bad that I needed the son of God himself to die for me? So this tells us that we're made right in the eyes of God's law, Romans 5.1 does, not by our works, but by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. This is what gives us fellowship with God and fellowship with other Christians. Faith in Christ, Jesus plus nothing. We gather around the center of the gospel in that way. Because of that, gospel-centered churches have incredible diversity. We're not, or at least we shouldn't be, gathering around race, economic status, upper, middle, or lower, lower class, or even common interests. For some of us, the only common interest we have is Jesus. We, we might never hang out with each other if it wasn't for Christ. That's why the gospel is so beautiful. Some of us might never hang out together in any other context outside of Christ, but the gospel brings us together because we accept one another on the basis of salvation by grace through faith alone. Now, there are threats to this unity, and one of the main threats is what we're calling extra-biblical excess. Here's what I mean. There are some things about which the Scripture gives a clear commandment, and we can't practice those things while we claim to be a Christian. But there are other matters that are unclear and are left up to conscience, the conscience of each individual Christian. The Gospel gives what Paul the Apostle calls repeatedly liberty to all Christ's followers to work out these matters in one's own faith. We're not under Old Testament law as a means of righteousness, Paul taught, but we're under grace. He says, sin shall not be your master for you're not under law, but under grace. Therefore, unless there's a clear commandment in scripture, we have freedom in those areas. Extra biblical excess is when a Christian takes their preference or conviction in that area and makes it a sin issue for another Christian when the Bible doesn't do that. So it's when we bring something into the center of the gospel that's not in the center of the gospel at all. It's literally defining sin and righteousness and acceptance before God differently than the Bible does. And that, my friends, is legalism. Notice, I didn't say unbiblical excess. See, the tricky part of this is what might be sin for one might not be sin for another. Listen to what Paul said again in Romans 14. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. That literally means one Christian might be able to do something in worship and gratitude that for another Christian, they might not be able to do that with a good conscience. They might not feel liberty to do that without feeling like they're sinning. And Paul's like, they're both right. We need to give liberty to one another under grace in these areas and not bring your preference or conviction in that area into the center of the gospel. There's a famous story about the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, lived in the 1800s. He was well known for his eloquent sermons, prolific writing, and his love of good cigars. He was once accused at a conference by a man named Dwight Pentecost. I mean, how are you not destined to be a preacher if your name is Dwight Pentecost? Well, he was accused by Dwight Pentecost of engaging in the sinful activity of smoking cigars, to which Charles Spurgeon publicly and famously replied. He got up after Dwight Pentecost had taken half of his sermon to accuse Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said this, Well, dear friends, you know that some men can do to the glory of God what to other men would be a sin. And notwithstanding what Brother Pentecost has said, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. If anybody can show me in the Bible the command, thou shalt not smoke, I'm ready to keep it. But I haven't found it yet. I find 10 commandments and it's as much as I can do to keep them. And I have no desire to make them into 11 or 12. You see, in Romans 14, it speaks to this issue, doesn't it? The issue there was food sacrifice to idols. It wasn't cigar smoking. But you can almost hear the common sense argument by those who abstained. How could I participate in demon worship by eating of this food? I'm not going to do it. And Paul says, that's okay. You can have, you have liberty to have a strong conviction in that area. Just don't make it a sin issue for your brother who is able to partake of the food in faith. Paul's argument is is that God can sanctify anything by faith. I think we underestimate God's ability to sanctify stuff. You know, it's the whole receive, reject, redeem uh, idea of principles. Some things in culture, for example, I can receive. I don't need to evaluate it spiritually like a Mac computer. I got a, you know, I got a Mac, a MacBook Pro. I don't need a Christian computer from a Christian computer company. I'll just receive that from culture. Some things I reject. There's no inherent value in pornography. I just reject it. But some things I redeem. Some things maybe were created, a song or a movie. uh, that It wasn't created for God or to worship God. uh, But I can take it and I can sanctify that. And and it can make my heart worship or help me me, uh, have illustrations for the gospel in some way. And I do this a lot with our family. We evaluate stuff in culture by redeeming it and turning it into something that is gospel-centered. So the problem is some Christians can do that, some can't. Some can do it in certain things and about certain things and others can't. And Christians are famous for throwing the yellow penalty flag for worldliness when someone has a different conscience or opinion about something that is in the biblical category of liberty. We look and we go, wait, you listen, you watch that movie? And we throw the yellow flag, you love the world. Oh wait, you, you listen to that song? Yellow flag, penalty, you love the world. Another way you could say it is, 
we add to the center of the gospel. We say, yes, Jesus, plus, plus, we talk a lot about being gospel-centered here. What does that mean? The simplest definition that I can give, and I gave this uh, two weeks ago, is that the standard by which God accepts us never shifts from faith in Jesus to faith in me. So we always remember when we're being gospel-centered that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So gospel-centered preaching must protect our freedom and war against legalism by preaching both the depravity of man and the radical love of God in Christ. So on one hand, I'm so sinful to the core that my works and my preferences will never make me good enough for God. But on the other hand, God is so loving that he gave his son just to demonstrate his radical grace to me. Because of this, I could never boast before God as though my works make me acceptable. And I could never boast over my brother as though my works make me superior. And yet we do it all the time. We add to the gospel. We add our works or our preferences. We take issues of conscience and liberty and make them issues of righteousness for other Christians. For example, Jesus plus don't play cards. That's an old one. Jesus plus no dancing. Jesus plus no rock music or secular music. Jesus plus homeschool. Jesus plus no alcohol. Jesus plus circumcision. Galatians. Jesus plus don't eat meat sacrifice to idols. Jesus plus, plus Sabbath on Saturday. Jesus plus Sabbaths on Sunday. Jesus plus speak in tongues. Jesus plus King James Version of the Bible only, 1611. It can literally happen with anything. I remember when we were in Grace Life Church in Western New York, um, there was a, a woman who visited our church. I thought she had good theology. I thought she was tracking with us. But she sent me this nasty email uh, one day and said, I'm not coming back to Grace Life because you don't wear a tie. And, and leaders wear ties. And how, how would you dress if you were going to see the president? So gotcha. That was her gotcha. So how would you dress if you were going to see, you'd wear a tie. Why don't you wear a tie when you go see Jesus? And my response was, well, how would you dress when you go see your dad? I ain't going to wear a tie to see my dad. Right? I mean, tie, no tie. Like it's, it's, it's just, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, what matters is faith in Christ. And so what was her gospel? Right? She, she believed in Jesus. She had pretty good theology around you know, a lot of gospel things. But right in the, at the end of the day, she added a tie. So her gospel was Jesus plus wear a tie. That is righteous. That is biblical. And so we gather around the tie. And here's the crazy thing. Churches and individuals, I'll have to talk about churches. Churches actually become more known by what they add to the gospel than by the gospel itself. You know, pick on homeschooling, you know, homeschoolers, because I, we're homeschool. My wife and I homeschool all our kids. We've been in movements where if you homeschool, you're awake. If you don't homeschool, then you're not awake and you're giving your kids over to the sodomites. Why would you do that? So homeschooling became an issue of righteousness. And listen, I love homeschooling. If anybody asks me, I'll say it was great. We, we loved doing it for the time that we did it. But it is not an issue of righteousness. It's not in the center of the gospel. It's a peripheral gospel issue. But churches that make it an issue of righteousness, if you homeschool, you're awake. If you don't homeschool, you're not awake. You, the, the church actually becomes more known by their preference than the gospel. So what kind of a church is that? I mean, if you've been around church culture at all, you'll, you'll know that that is a homeschool church. 
Or if you add a certain version of you know, your end time theology, there's all kinds of ways people think about the end times and what's going to happen. People argue about this stuff. And so people say, uh, you have to be you know, pre-trib or post-trib, or you have to believe uh, in a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture in order to really, if you believe that, you really get it. Well, now it's our gospel. Jesus plus you know, uh, pre-trib rapture. Jesus plus premillennialism or postmillennialism. And the church becomes known by their eschatology instead of the gospel. It's, it's, a, it's a funny dynamic. And in, in the last few years, it's been some new things we add to the gospel that are actually areas of liberty. Jesus plus wear a mask. Jesus plus don't wear a mask. Jesus plus the coronavirus is a hoax. Jesus plus you're not taking this virus serious enough. Jesus plus racial injustice is real. Jesus plus the critical race theory. Jesus plus be a Republican. Jesus plus be a Libertarian. Jesus plus Trump. Jesus plus no Trump. And the church, it just, it is just divided in 10 ways over this stuff. Good grief. What's the remedy? The remedy is remembering the gospel and walking in love. Paul, I'm repeating a scripture I shared the first week. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul brings us back to the cornerstone. Jesus is called the cornerstone. Do you know how cornerstones worked or how they're important they were in constructing ancient buildings? This is from an article I came across. Buildings were laid out with astronomical precision in relation to the points of a compass with emphasis on corners. Cornerstones symbolize the seeds from which buildings would germinate and rise. The cornerstone is the first stone set in construction of a masonry foundation. All other stones will be set in preference to this stone, determining the position of the entire structure. So you see that? We have to be in line with the cornerstone. We have to be in line with the gospel as we build gospel culture. So the remedy is the gospel. We don't let things in the middle of the gospel, in the center of the gospel, that the gospel doesn't put in the center of the gospel. Second thing is we walk in love. Back to the text, verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. See, so the question in fellowship then ceases to be, is it right or wrong to do that about areas of conscience? The, the right question is, what's the most loving thing to do? You know, we had, uh, my kids had some friends coming over uh, my, when, when Grace and Joy were young. They, they liked Michael Jackson. We had a Michael Jackson top 10 CD and they, they loved it. But I knew that their <clears throat> Christian homeschool friends were coming over who thought that if you listen to Michael Jackson music, you're going to hell. So I told our, our kids, don't listen to Michael Jackson music around them. That wouldn't be loving to do that. You'd be afflicting their consciences and it'd be parading, it'd be parading your liberty before them. And so we put the Michael Jackson music away. Why? Because we love them and we didn't want to afflict their consciences. To them, it was sin to listen to that and I didn't want to make them sin by having my kids play music that they thought was sinful. So we didn't make it an issue. So walking in love means that your love is thorough. It applies to everything. It, it's comprehensive, not compartmentalized. You, you don't love these people and not these people. You don't love 
in this area, but get nasty in this area. And here's some acid tests to help us know how we're doing. Number one, do your preferences make you feel superior? Do your convictions make you feel superior? If they do, you're not walking in love. You're not, you're not walking with a gospel-centered view of the thing. Number two, this is a step further. Can you rejoice that your brother or sister has a different preference and that Jesus still accepts you and them on the basis of faith? Can you rejoice that somebody has a different preference and say, man, I'm not going to call them legalistic. I'm just going to love them because we're in Christ together. Some good acid tests and searchlights for our hearts to make sure that we're walking in love toward our brothers and sisters. Some application of this message. Number one, know the difference between preferences and actual sin. Interesting, in Romans 7, Paul's talking about his own sin and he seems to be giving himself some, some grace there. Uh, he says, the good I want to do, I can't do, evil's right there with me. I want to serve God and you know, basically help me, God. Help, help me to, to serve you, even though I'm battling this, this, these temptations and sin. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing a letter to the church and he says, oh, this guy who's sinning, sleeping with his stepmom, uh, I'm going to kick him out of the church. So it's like, why is Paul giving, it seems, himself grace and this other guy not giving him grace? Is, is it a double standard? What we find when we look at both those texts is in Romans 7, Paul is battling his sin. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we have a man who was not repentant and he was celebrating his sin. And some people in the church were with him. Paul says that's not right. And so when, when, we, when we interact with sin, uh, we have to see whether or not our attitude or the attitude of a brother or sister toward that sin is one of celebration or one of battling the sin. And then make sure that if it's not an actual sin, if it's just a preference, that we don't make it an issue of sin for them. Okay, finally, make your end game peace and encouragement. Paul said, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Lord, I turn to you right now and ask you to help the church to love as we've been loved, to give as we've been given, and to reach out as we've been reached out to. And Lord, not to let anything come into the center of the gospel, but know the joy of our salvation, that we're saved by grace through faith. God bless you. Jesus is enough. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.